I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a podcast on everything from employment to aircraft carriers. We are a bunch of policy nuts based in Namma, Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. I'm Manoj, a journalist, and I'm Shambhavi, a cell biologist. The Takshashila Institution offers 12-week online courses in public policy, technology policy, and defense and foreign affairs. The courses are ideal for both full-time students and working professionals. Admissions for the September 2019 batch are now open. Visit our website takshashila.org.in for more details. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. Uh, today we're going to talk about China. Uh, we have our China Studies uh, team here, and uh, Manoj and uh, Suyash, and they've been working on a project uh, that looks at China's foreign policy and its security policy. And uh, we just want to get into the inside track of what they're working on. It's still a work in progress, but they're talking about specifically China's uh, tools of statecraft. And I think we're going to focus today a lot on the non-military tools China uses. I want to start with you, Manoj. Tell us how is China different from other countries in the way it uses these tools of statecraft. Hi. Okay. So I, I'm not really sure how it's necessarily different uh, because it's not like there are these tools are unique to the Chinese. Uh, every country uses some of these, and as we talk about them, you'll figure out what these are. But it's the way in which uh, you know the Communist Party of China leverages some of these tools. Uh, how publicly it does it, how clandestinely it does some of these things. From our point of view, our objective was that if you're going to uh, try and understand uh, Chinese foreign policy, Chinese security policy, um, and this increasingly assertive Chinese foreign policy, how does that play out uh, in the world outside is what we wanted to try and understand. Um, and therefore, we've created a certain set of uh, you know, we've identified a certain set of tools that that the Chinese use, um, and we'll uh, and as presum- presumably as I talk about them and as Suyash and I talk about them, you'll probably uh, be able to relate more to what's happening in the world right now because uh, there'll be lots of real life examples. It's not abstract academic conversation. So yeah, um, I I don't say I wouldn't say necessarily that the Chinese are have got something unique at their hands. Um, so, for example, often when people talk about something called the United Front, um, they use this language of, oh, that's what the Chinese Communist Party defines it as a magic weapon. Well, it's not really a magic weapon. It's a particular tool which is used. Uh, it's a particular institution which is used to, uh, you know, uh, attract your diaspora, to talk to your diaspora. Um, and India also does that. So when our prime minister goes out and he speaks to the diaspora community uh, outside India, um, it's a way of energizing them to be able to su- be supportive of Indian policy. Um, and that's exactly what the Chinese also do, but they do it slightly more differently. India does it a little bit more... Openly? Uh, openly and also a little bit more... I mean, we're not as aggressive. Uh, uh, and those are structure, there are structural reasons why we're not as aggressive and why we can't be as aggressive. Um, the Chinese are far more aggressive in some of this stuff. But yeah, as we talk about this, I mean, this is just one snippet of a whole gamut of things that we're going to be talking about. Um, so as we talk about this more, you'll probably uh, have a little bit more insight. Um, like I said, this is work in progress. Right. So uh, this is often called a whole of nation approach, right? Yeah. How has the rise of Xi Jinping changed the way China uses its tools of statecraft? Okay. I think what Xi Jinping has done is that because uh, he's been able to centralize so much of uh, authority in the country, he's been able to ensure that there is 
a little bit better direction in terms of how China wants to uh, achieve its foreign policy objectives. He's also been able to, in some ways, redefine how what China's foreign policy objectives are. So before Xi Jinping took charge, um, so in 2008-2009 is when we started seeing China get a little bit more assertive, uh, say, on in the South China Sea. Um, and subsequently, if you remember, a couple of years after that is when we started seeing with regard to India, stapled visas and so on and so forth. Um, and then obviously in 2013, we had a border standoff. And then subsequently, again, when Xi Jinping visited, there was a border standoff. These escalated. So then you had Doklam. And then after Doklam, you had uh, the Wuhan summit and so on and so forth. Um, how Xi Jinping has changed is because he's become this leader who is no longer first amongst equals. He is above the rest of them. He's got a different uh, you know, space that he occupies. Uh, and therefore, he's attempted to harmonize policy making and different actors and their interests all towards one broader objective. Has he been successful in doing that? Uh, that's sort of, uh, it depends on how you look at that. Um, the fact that he's had to go through such a massive anti-corruption purge, the fact that he still struggles with, uh, if you repeat it, if you look at Chinese state media, you'll constantly hear the top leadership talking about tackling bureaucratism, formalism, and so on and so forth, which is essentially code for guys you're not doing what we want you to do and you know push the file forward get things moving um, and the fact that he's still having to do that tells you that getting a whole of nation approach even in a country which is a unitary sort of leadership model like China is very very difficult is it easier than say a country like India yes of course because the ability of the state and the party to bring together different actors whether they are researchers universities private sector state enterprises government is far much more in that country than say in india in india you're not going to be able to set a target and tell your private sector that this is the kind of target that we need you to meet and then provide them with whole hosts of subsidies or pick winners uh, as national champions because that will in involve a whole lot of questioning on issues like corruption um, in china you can probably do that a little bit easier um, so there's, that's the notion of this whole-of-nation approach. Uh, and because Xi Jinping has centralized authority, uh, in many ways he's been able to do it far more effectively than others before him. But does it mean that there is an order from his office and everybody falls in line? No. If that was the case, you wouldn't still be seeing people purged. And you wouldn't still be seeing these repeated statements about, you know, we need to incentivize local level officials. We need to promote better guys who do the right job. We need to ensure that political integrity is met as a primary criteria. The reason that that's being stressed is because some of that still needs to be met. Um, so that's this notion of whole of nation approach. But this impacts their foreign and security policy, right? Because if your foreign policy is now dependent on getting a technological edge, you need the private sector to also achieve certain goals and invest in AI, invest in robotics. And the ability of the Chinese government to get the private sector to do some of these things, vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, say, the American government or the Indian government, is far greater. So we get a sense that there are both external drivers and internal structures that drive this uh, foreign policy. Can you talk a little bit about this, Suyash? Uh, so there are uh, external and internal drivers which drive the foreign policy of China, which have not changed. There have been improvements in that, but which have been constant. It is not so that it has changed after coming over of Xi Jinping. These have remained largely constant. There are some additions and subtractions in it. I have divided it. I can see four main drivers, economy, geography, internal stability and energy. I can start talking about economy first. 
over the past three decades, I think China has maintained constantly maintained high growths. It was uh, for first two decades after uh, the reforms, it was about nine point some nine point six percent, and after two thousand uh, in two, from two thousand five two thousand seven, even after the global meltdown of two thousand eight, it is over ten percent. High growth is especially important for maintaining the internal stability. Also. This China's going out, which started in 2002, followed by BRI in the uh, 2011 decade, this enables China to create a larger marketplace outside China. So, if you see she uh, is President Xi's speech, now China is slowing down, and he has accepted that, and he is saying that this is the new norm. This is the new normal in case of China. So, BRI can be said as a way of China to. address the economic issue is that the only way no but it is one of the way it it helps it helps china to create new places of export in long term for this can be followed by one other instance that is uh, oversupply overcapacity problem in china so from 2002 2003 we have seen constant oversupply in steel aluminium iron industry in china if if i can give give you a statistics 800 uh, 800 tons right manoj mm-hmm. or 800 million million. Uh, million tons so essentially the chinese were producing more than half mm-hmm. the world steel yes um and that was more than required at any point of time uh, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, and this was strategic right so starting from 2002 yes. 2003 they invested in steel coal and so on and so forth and they wanted to expand capacity very soon they expanded capacity they reached capacity and then as the global economy sort of slumped and demand further fell you were faced with the choice of uh, do you cut capacity which would mean job losses or do you continue to maintain jobs uh, in order to get the social stability which suresh is talking about but to do that you need to continue to subsidize some of these plants and in doing that you're creating capacity which is not being used um and as a consequence you ended up building all these ghost cities and ghost towns yes. uh, in order to support your economy they continue to do that although there's been effort made in the last few years to cut down capacity and capacity has been cut down but there's only so much you can given the internal stability dynamic that suresh was talking about so i'll give, just give you a uh, example for it us and europe together uh, makes 300 million tons of steel and aluminum and the capacity for china is 800 so you can see the difference so that is how the st- and it is as manoj rightly said it is directly linked with the stability in xinjiang and tibet region so it can have an adverse impact moving forward to geography if you see china's geography it is surrounded by chain of islands so two things the open pacific the access to open seas to for china is pacific or south china sea that is why south china sea is important for china also south china sea is important because it is one third of the global energy supply goes through south china sea that is why they are uh, doing militarization etc also in case of a possible scenario where there is a war hypothetically If you see China's geography, if you just visualize a map in front of you, there would be a complete island blockade, right, from Japan till uh, Vietnam. So that access to open seas that is why Taiwan is an important factor for China. Hong Kong is an important factor, and that is how geography matters for China. Yeah, in case of energy, it is the known fact that uh, China is the most energy-consuming nation. China and India are two most energy-consuming consum- nations. As I already pointed out, one third of the global Energy supply passes through South China Sea, Strait of Malacca. 
so that is why south china sea is important and militarization is happening it started in 2008 2009 despite the arrangement between president obama and president xi which has not been followed by china now and he is going on militarizing things and also bri can be seen as one of the ways to address the energy problem but it's a very expensive way because logistically if you speak if go, land facilitation or land transportation of energy is a expensive affair than sea that is why again sea is important for china south china sea is important uh, for china yeah i mean energy is you know crucial to economic development um so just securing your energy supplies is one of those things but that i mean what suresh has basically explained to you is that uh, there are multiple reasons why china acts the way it does in terms of how it deals with countries uh, other countries um these are your four primary uh, reasons why what drive its foreign policy there are obviously many other things there is a sense of you know being a major power in the international system uh, being able to define the rules of the game being able to swayed decisions norms and so on and so forth so a number of these things that are reputational also that are other symbols of power are also important but these what is defined are your four core drivers that uh, propel foreign policy um, the rest of them then derive i forgot to say one thing the anchor of all this is existence or legitimacy of the communist party which yeah. drives all these things yeah so, i mean yeah. unless you're going to be growing and you're going to be having not just growing economically but also have this growing international space given that they define national rejuvenation as a stated objective um you're not going to be able to legitimize your own uh, rule anymore it's no longer just economics that's going to legitimize your rule um so that's one part of the study where we try and understand why china does what it does Now, obviously, BRI is a very visible aspect of uh, China's expansion. It's what worth about ninety billion dollars worth of investment. Yeah, estimatedly. Estimate and something like six trillion dollars worth of trade. It's just fascinating, right? These numbers are like increasingly uh, there, and the numbers vary from uh, you know very different sources. But the official Chinese sources, which gave us which gave us these this data, was in April twenty nineteen uh, during the second BRI forum. uh where they put out this that they have invested about 90 billion and trade between china and bri partner countries is at 6 trillion dollars which is phenomenal yeah and this would i'm assuming bring two types of influence one is through trade and one is through investment i just want to start with the trade how does china use trade both as a power of attraction and a power of coercion the use of trade in many ways so okay china is the world's biggest trading nation it's the world's factory it supplies a bunch of manufactured goods to countries and one of the interesting ways in which it uses trade is that it says that we might want to place certain restrictions on you because we have a massive market Uh, so sometimes we have resources and we want to place restrictions on resources. So we want to place exp- export controls. Um, they did this with Japan in 2010, uh, where they placed restrictions on uh, rare earths. Over the last six eight months, we've heard constant threats about potentially placing restrictions on rare earth exports in the context of the U.S. trade war. So far, it's not really happened. In fact, a report that has come out today says that actually. the export of so called rare earths has actually gone up so it's not happened and there's a limitation to some of these tools that you can use but rare earths and re- export restrictions is one type of kind of trade restriction that you could use the other uh, trade restriction that you could use is that you could uh, increase discretionary fee or tariffs or some sort of a discretionary duty on imports from a particular country um this happened with mongolia a couple of years ago uh, and this was in the context of the dalai lama's visit and suddenly at the cross border sort of uh, transit point uh, there was an additional fee that was added which made goods much more expensive uh, and which threw off sort of your traders uh, business models and eventually when there was a conversation once the 
fee was pulled back um, the chinese foreign minister without any sort of sense of remorse said that well we hope the mongolians have learned their lessons um, <laughs> so i'm paraphrasing but that's essentially what he said so that's another way right where you impo- impose certain kind of uh, tax certain kind of fee then there are other ways where you try and create non tariff barriers and the americans have complained a lot about this we've complained a lot about this particularly in the context of our pharmaceutical firms this could be just additional custom checks um this could be a sudden quality issue that's been noticed uh, and right now we can see this in the case of canada where canadian meat has been picked up for certain quality issues and therefore uh, exports from canada have gone down canola oil from canada and those canola seed products so the export of those has subsided and that's obviously it's not a coincidence that this has happened as canada has detained mang wanjiao from huawei so that's another method in which you can use this but beyond that there's also you can block off your market or you can make your market far more difficult for uh, companies uh, from certain countries uh, by just whipping up nationalism in some ways this we saw in 2012 i'm not saying that there is nothing organic about some of these nationalistic outbursts there is a, there is something organic about it but given the nature of the chinese state's control over information right to assembly and so on and so forth it's quite easy for them to be able to curtail some of these outbursts but in 2012 we saw a massive outburst uh, against the japanese where japanese car makers were attacked japanese exporters were troubled all of these activities are essentially why do we call them as tools as tools of statecraft in terms of your broader foreign and security policy is because the purpose of these activities is to impact the behavior of a state and you do that by hitting exports imports trade you do that by creating certain barriers or you do that by creating complications for their companies working in china and by that method you try and impact a state's behavior will you always succeed no in the case of south korea in 2017 once the south koreans decided to uh, install the third missile system um the chinese adopted a gamut of things right from uh, restricting tourist flows to troubling lot group which uh, essentially provided the land for the third missile system and the south koreans didn't budge um they went through a protracted period of uh, very poor trade south korean brands cosmetics k-pop everything came under fire um but they didn't budge so you don't necessarily always achieve your objectives but these are ways and means in which the activities in the uh, decisions of a certain state can be manipulated can be tried you know you can motivate them to change some of these things by using something like this yeah I, most of the points you have covered i've just i can think of few examples in the recent past as amanoj said 2010 was uh, japan when rare earths were uh, export of rare earth was curbed to japan 2012 to 2016 we see this we saw this problem with china and philippines leading up to the case then 2017 was uh, south korea when third missile was installed china had a big problem with that 2000 uh, again 2016 elections taiwan 40% or more than 40 45% of taiwan's economy is uh, dependent on china and hong kong because of the import and export so china tried the same thing with uh, taiwan in during the elections when democratic party was about to win and us of course it can be broadly de- and i to add on to this it is not just economy one is just the sheer size of market which china threatened second is access to the market duties etc this is coupled with companies uh, threat to the companies which are investing fdi threats through bairi and tourism so in certain cases like philippines or in case of taiwan uh, tourism was also affected due to this 
So these are all factors that China uses. Yeah, the, the broad sense that I get is that um, China has tried using natural resources as a means of coercion, but has understood that hasn't worked. Yeah, I mean, the Red bit didn't work at all, right? I mean, uh, people eventually started to look for, and even right now when they're threatening, alternatives have been developed. China's monopoly has been not eliminated but diminished since 2010. And the more you do this, the more you shift people because the political risk of some of this involves and traders move away, people move away. There's another facet of how they use their market uh, and their market power, um, which we're right now being seen, sort of we see this playing being played out in Hong Kong right now. If anybody's followed what's happened with Cathay Pacific, uh, where the CEO was sacked, uh, you know, the staff's been troubled, you know, staff from Cathay Pacific who participated in the protests in Hong Kong are being picked out as, you know, you can no longer travel the mainland sector. Um, so you're putting pressure on an organization in order to shape an organization's behavior uh, and a multinational corporation's behavior, essentially. The same thing you're seeing with the big four, PwC, Deloitte, KPMG, uh, and ENY, where uh, a couple of days ago, there was an advertisement pulled out in uh, Hong Kong newspapers uh, by employees, apparently, of some of these companies. And the companies were forced to distance themselves from, that, from those advertisements. And you had Chinese press, Global Times particularly, saying things like, you must establish your clear position on this. So you're basically pressurizing companies to toe your political line. And I mean, this is currently, but if I just go back a year or so ago when uh, the Chinese Civil Aviation Authority issued that notice saying all airlines should change the name Taiwan to Chinese Taipei and so on and so forth mm -hmm. uh, to abide by the one China principle. And although you had the American administration, the Trump administration calling it Orwellian nonsense, everybody eventually gave in. Did it shape a state's behavior? No, but it normalized Chinese territorial claims in the eyes of certain major organizations and therefore that starts to normalize it more in popular discourse also. Um, Air India was one of the companies which made that switch too. So that's another aspect of it where you're using, where you're targeting private companies, you're targeting multinationals and you're making sure that they toe your line. I mean, Japanese companies, I remember, I can't remember the name of the company, but uh, I think it was Muji, but I'm not sure. Uh, one of the companies which was asked to take back shipments because the hangers on which the products were delivered was said it was written made in Taiwan. So, you know, you're trying to shape behavior uh, and you're setting terms of reference saying that if you need to work in China, and that's because our market size is such that you have to work with us, then you need to abide by these rules. And these are essentially political objectives, right? I don't see traders in China really being worried about something like this. Yeah. So, but just a minute. This is not something new. I think it's. I think Dalai Lama, when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, I think China also behaved in a certain way with uh, exactly. Norway. So there, you again, you are trying to impact the behavior of a state. Mm -hmm. Here, you're impacting the behavior of an organization. So when they pressurized Air India to make that change, they're not saying that the Indian government in its whatever must do this. They're saying that Air India airlines must do this if airlines need to ply this route. So you're essentially asking for a corporation to change its behavior, potentially hoping that that will create enough pressure on states to eventually change. But it's not necessarily aimed at a state's behavior. So it's not saying that, you know, uh, every each of these countries must firmly state the one China principle, blah, blah, and not have relationships with Taiwan at all. It's not saying that. What it's saying is that as an airline, if you want to apply this route, you must do this. It's telling Cathay that if you want to apply this route, your employees can't participate in protests. Um, and that's very different from telling uh, people that you can't do something or a state telling the state that you can't do something. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, the other aspect. Yeah, so China, obviously, the most effective coercive tool it has is using its markets and, you know, 
building relationships with the countries and then threatening to deny them that access yeah. and this clearly works better with corporations because uh, yeah. uh they don't have those stakes they don't necessarily have that nationalist audience yeah. though there might be some people who boycott them and so on and uh, you also hear that uh, companies are actually telling their own home governments not to intervene because it'll make things worse for yeah. them Yeah. Yeah, I mean look, uh, corporations will do that, right? I mean, uh, in as part of this trade war, the Chinese have lobbied American companies and told American companies quite publicly, can you go back and tell your government not to do this? And if you want to continue working here, uh, and there's so there's a carrot approach, right? You sometimes invite them over and tell them, look guys, this is in your benefit, you must do this. And then there are these sticks where you say things like, well, FedEx, you send some of these packages a little bit mysteriously and so we are going to investigate you and we're going to establish an unreliable entities list. Heaven knows what that list is going to do. but those are the kind of sticks where you're saying that we might make your life really really difficult here and this is a big market do you want to lose it alternatively if you abide by what we want we'll be really nice to you we'll no longer see where your packets are going um, <laughs> so yeah so it's uh, it's a mix of those uh, the key point in all of this is that none of this is market driven this is political and therefore it becomes a tool of statecraft where you're seeking to achieve political objectives and not economic objectives um it's not it's unlike industrial policy where you're looking to achieve economic objectives this is political um and that's where we sort of categorize this as one of the tools of statecraft that the chinese state uses but i think there are a couple of more that i want to talk about which i think are quite interesting and i'm not sure how much time we have um but one of them is say this notion of uh, cultivating elites in other countries so if you go back to sort of the mao years and you'll see a lot of this uh, where uh, you know mao wanted to export revolution and so he trained uh, Uh, so there was training of different revolutionary outfits around the world leaders from different parts of the world who became revolutionary leaders or sort of communist leaders from different parts of the world would travel to china and they would get trained over there and that was one way in which you created an elite which would go and fight and you know create revolution once mao went and that particular logic went away and once deng xiaoping came and gradually china became richer um, we've heard xi jinping say these things now right uh, that there's a china model and china can provide global solutions and so on and so forth Well, how do you export that model? How do you build uh, that network? Well, you do that by trying to make sure that the elites in certain countries that you are important to you—not necessarily even important to you, but elites across the world—you have a linkage with them, because the Chinese system is unlike the American system of the American model, where America wants to engage with audiences with notions of democracy, human rights, and so on and so forth. However, hypocritical one might see them. The Chinese directly deal with the elites. What's the best way to ensure that democratic change or leadership changes in other countries don't impact their relationships with you if you're not building a society to society connect? Well the best way to do it is that you build connections with the next generations of elite. Um so in Africa the Chinese have been running training programs for politicians, young leaders, bureaucrats uh, for a number of years. Uh, but that program has sort of now gained much more momentum in the last 6 7 years they've trained about 1000 young African leaders. Um, and that's one way right training there's another way which is building linkages between political parties and the communist party of china and uh, under xi jinping a couple of years ago they launched uh, this world political parties dialogue forum and he says that you know over the next 5 years we're going to have about 5000 people from political parties around the world visit china understand our model and we'll ex- have exchanges some bit of training whatever and repeatedly if you just scan through chinese media over the last 2 years particularly since december 2017 you'll see a lot of political party representatives visiting beijing um you'll see a lot of these training programs happening and that cultivates familiarity uh, that cultivates legitimacy um and that helps as transitions happen in these parties um the other way is also just by you know bri bri 
promises elites in different countries, particularly democratic countries, where you're worried about your next election, um, the potential to get Chinese money to be able to create projects uh, for developmental or, you know, just showpiece purposes, um, you can create those. You've got the capital, the Chinese are coming and doing it. And whether they are profitable in the long run is a separate thing altogether. But at least in the short run, you can get to show your constituents that, oh, look, we did this wonderful park. And that, for me, as a local politician, could be an alluring prospect. And you see this in Pakistan. The Chinese ambassador is not sitting in Islamabad or Rawalpindi. He's not just in, uh, dealing with the national-level power brokers. He's traveling around the world, around this country. He's going to Baluchistan. He's going to Khyber Pakhtunwa. He's going to all these places, meeting local parties, telling them that, oh, Baluchistan is extremely important for CPEC, and we are going to ensure that it's a priority why would the Chinese ambassador be doing that? Um, I can understand Imran Khan doing that. But why would the Chinese ambassador be doing that? And he does that on a regular basis. Um, so some of this business where you're sort of engaging with sub-national level elites uh, in order to, slightly harsh word, but in order to cultivate them, to cultivate a favorable opinion of yourself. That's one of the things that they started doing. I mean, they've not just done this in Pakistan, but Sri Lanka, we've seen this in Bangladesh and in other places also. Africa, but predominantly. So I think this is another aspect of Chinese foreign policy which doesn't get discussed as much. Um, but this is a tool of statecraft. You're using, uh, you know, your linkages with elites and you're building a favorable opinion and a favorable view among the coming generation of leaders. And that secures your relationship over a period of time. On a lighter side, on a very funny side, China doesn't need to bother about India in this case. It, we already have CPIML, CPIM, which has already supported in massacre in 1989. Yeah, but I mean, uh, beyond Tiananmen. beyond Tiananmen. Them, beyond them, if you look at uh, <laughs> these forums, you've got even the mainstream parties from India who attend. And I don't, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. You need to be meeting with each other, but there's a fine line between engaging to understand and then somewhere that becoming problematic. And we saw that in Sri Lanka when Hamban Tota was given up and then the New York Times expose came up about how Chinese developmental funding was being funneled into campaign finances for Rajpaksa. So, you know, there's a fine line between when this changes into something more, you know, what some people like to call sharp power. But I think it's one of those things which is understudied and part of it is understudied is because there is very little, it's very difficult to report on this. Um, uh, the another another aspect of this is like say uh, we, I spoke about the United Front earlier on. You see protests in Australia, you see protests in New Zealand, you see protests in Canada where Chinese students are protesting. They're protesting against the Hong Kong protesters. Exactly, they're protesting against Hong Kong protesters in that country. It's debatable how much influence the party has on these people, direct influence that it's instigating these protests. But the fact that it's been able to capture the narrative for these people. Um, and also somewhere for some parts of elite in these countries. In Australia, you saw this scandal with Sam Dastyari having to step down. That's where this sort of becomes murky and problematic. And I think that's what most countries, particularly democratic countries, where the pressures on politicians are to get re-elected, need to be very mindful of. And it's a tricky balance. It's a tricky balance to be mindful of that and not go down this draconian system where you end up criminalizing any engagement, which is part of what the concern was in Africa, uh, in Australia, when they spoke about these foreign interference laws and all of that. So you want to find some sort of a balance, um, but it's really tricky to find this balance. But at least until you can do that, have an understanding that this is one of the ways in which the Chinese government seeks to expand its influence. Yeah, so and it's uh, like you pointed out with Australia, it's not just developing countries. There's, I mean, there's yeah, exactly. David Cameron. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yes. But uh, I just want to very quickly, uh, before we wrap up, just tell us a little bit about how China uses military sales. Okay, so arms sales is again, it's one of those early things where it's uh, still developing. Uh, China's defense industrial complex is still expanding. It's expanding at a very rapid scale, so it's still exporting, but it's not this massive arms seller around the world at the moment. Uh, I think some of its biggest clients are, I think, Algeria, Pakistan, Bangladesh are among its biggest clients. Uh, what's interesting about increasing arms sales by the Chinese is this, that you are looking at developing contingencies in other countries which are partner BRI nations so that eventually when you want to maybe have basing, basing agreements, you can do your supplies, spare parts, management, maintenance, all in those areas. So that's one way in which one should look at arms sales. The other way to look at it is the fact that there is a competition in the international market, particularly for things like drones, uh, UAVs, and the Chinese are wanting to leverage their private sector expertise in this area. So DJI, uh, which is a drone maker, Chinese drone maker, which is the biggest drone maker in the world, which essentially is uh, the most dominant player. Um, and the Chinese are looking to leverage private expertise to be able to also sell UAVs and de- jointly even develop them in the Middle East um, because you're seeing opportunities. Yeah, they're actually being used in the Yemen war. Exactly. So they're going to be doing much more of this. And it's not necessarily conditional. So when the West is selling you arms and putting 20 conditions on that in terms of how you can use it, where you can use it, why you can use it, um, the Chinese are basically putting no conditions. And it's cheaper. It's not terrible quality. It's pretty decent quality. Uh, And that means that it's going to grow in influence. Um, So the arms sales bit is one bit that is going to continue to grow in influence. Um, It's not at the level where, say, we're talking about the US and Russia, uh, but it will grow in influence over the next decade. Um, And what's going to accompany it is increased military diplomacy. So you're going to see much more of Chinese. You already have a Chinese version of the Shangri-La Dialogue, uh, which is the Xiangshan Forum. Um, you're going to see that becoming much more prominent. You're going to see more Chinese uh, port calls. You're going to see more Chinese bilateral drills. I mean, India today has what, one bilateral drill, hand-in-hand exercise with the Chinese. We have an SCO drill. You're going to have another one very soon. So we're doing much more. And if they're doing much more with us, which is a nation which they have had a contested history, um, with Pakistan, with African countries, uh, they have a structured security dialogue with the African countries. Um, and they're building you know, headquarters over there. They are training African troops. Um, So they're doing a lot of things. Um, And they'll be doing much more of this because they have capacity and they want to be able to expand this influence. And also, the more newer markets your weapons go, the more newer markets your troops go, the better they train, the better you test, the more effective you become operationally. So you're going to see more of that. Okay. Well, thanks, Manoj and Suyash, for this uh, panoramic survey of how China uses uh, it's tools of statecraft. Uh, clearly, these are multifaceted and they're resilient and they're here to stay. Uh, thank you so much. We'd love to hear what you think about this chat. Check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila Inst on our Quora space, All Things Policy. For the latest analysis and research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, visit our website at takshashila.org.in and tune in for our next episode.